Hi, this is James Christian from the House of Lords, and you are listening to Focus on Metal. Listen up. Hey, Metalheads, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another week of Focus on Metal. We've got uh, two guests on the show for you this week, one that's been on before. That's the guy you heard up front, James Christian. He'll be uh, talking with us later on in the show. But first up, we have epic photographer Mark Weiss. That's right, we have the Weiss guy on the show with us this week, talking all about his brand new massive book called The Decade That Rocked, The Photography of Mark Weiss Guy Weiss. So right up front, before we even talk to Mark, I can tell you that you're going to expect to get almost 400 pages of classic rock photography, all the greats from the uh, from the decade that rocked, according to Mark, that is the 80s. So all kinds of people in that book and also talks with the artist. And even as Mark gets into an interview, talks with fans as well. So good stuff. We've got over uh, a little over half an hour with Mark this week talking all about that and just about his whole views on the whole scene and all that good stuff. So lots of stuff to talk about this week. So why don't I just, uh, as usual, shut the hell up and turn it over to Richie and Mark Weiss. Hey, how you doing? I'm all right, Mark. Everything okay with you? Everything's fine. Okay, okay. So, Mark, we'll yeah. get we'll get into the book, right? The decade that rocked. The first question I have is, what made it right now to bring out the book? Well, uh, it's been a long time coming. I I signed my contract with the publisher seven years ago in September, and uh, in the beginning, it was supposed to be like a a one off book on uh on like just a hair band because i thought it would be an easy an easy fix an easy book to do because i was kind of scared of doing this big book i didn't think i was ready you know it would be like too overwhelming to do to put everything in in words and in in pictures and putting them all together so when i decided after a year and a half to do that i um uh or to stop it i decided to change change the corner and and go with a more of a reflective book and uh i kind of did it because my son guy just had a baby jackson uh four four years ago or you know so we found out about this five years ago and i'm like you know i want a book for for jackson to read when he's older and to to learn about his grandfather so uh so I decided to make it like my memoirs or, you know, kind of just like a narrative for me. Uh, and then with a little trickling of interviews from other, uh, you know, the artists that I shot and people in the business and then just kind of trinkle it in there a little bit. But really, it's just, it was just like my I just wanted to put my life in perspective. And so people for generations to come to see what I experienced along with the generation of from that decade. Um, did you have all of the photographs archived? Like you actually knew where they all were when you went looking for them? Uh, not really. No, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to take that back. Uh, they weren't archived. They were in filing cabinets in, around my house, upstairs in the garage. I have a two car garage. I have filing cabinets with over like 50 cabinets filled up with the slides. So, you know, over the decades that, you know, whenever someone would need a photo, would need a photograph for either a magazine or a re-release or a merchandising item for one of the bands doing a t-shirt, uh, I would go and scan the photos then. So I kind of had maybe 50, 60% already scanned, you know, to kind of give a skeleton of it. So that kind of helped me in the process. And then after I kind of, kind of figured it out, I knew what other shoots that were important to me. Uh, that I wanted to include, and then I would kind of dig back in the files, and then I would go through the scanning process and the retouching. So it was uh, it was a real chore. That's why it took so long. Um, but uh, I just wanted it to be just right. Hmm. Mark, has your definition of what a great photo is changed over the years? When and I'm not asking that because you just mentioned there that you went looking through all of the old photographs to get to get them together. Like, did you think some of them were great in the past, and you looked at them now and you went? Nah, that really wasn't that good. It's probably the other way around. Uh, you know, when I 
did all these photo shoots back in the eighties. Um, I was just cranking them out. I was nonstop. I was 24 seven going from tour to tour and I didn't have a chance to appreciate my photographs. Uh, you know, the fans did, they ripped them out and put them on their walls. I just took the magazine and threw it in a box in my garage. So now it's time for me to enjoy my photography from the, from that, that decade mm. and, and actually, and actually reflect a little bit, a lot, uh, on the shoots, uh, you know, talking with the artists, you know, because a lot of the artists were interviewed about specific shoots as well as, you know, just about me being on the road and being a photographer. And also the fans, uh, you know, which meant a lot to me. Like I had fan mail back then, you know, because I always put my picture in with the band and like whenever I did a big story in one of the magazines. So the fans knew what I looked like and they would write to me and they write to the magazines and, you know, I would write back whenever I could, but I kept all the letters. And when going through the letters during this process of the book, there was a few that stood out and one actually made a full page, uh, sitting across from a full page spread with Eddie Trunks, uh, afterward. So, um, uh, I, I want to reconnect with the fans again, cause this, the decade, the eighties, uh, something special about the fans. And, uh, you know, I just want to reconnect with them. I mean, I, uh, there's been, I have a contest right now where if you go on my website, it's, uh, uh on the bottom of my website, the decade at rock.com, there's a section called fanatic and I post photos of the fan mail and also pictures of fans from the concerts. And right now, one of them is uh, a Def Leppard photo with like three dominant women or girls at the time. Uh, at a Def Leppard concert and, you know, in the front row, and I just turned around and took a picture. And that's in the, that's in the book. Every chapter, there's a chapter opener with a photo of me, a photo of me in the band, my lap, some laminates from that, that, that year, and my album covers from that year, as well as a couple other photos that are like on slides, as well as a fan photo. And that photo is in, uh, 1983 and every month i'm going to have another contest and uh if you can identify yourself in with that photo like the first one or two that identifies them i'm going to send them the photo of that as well as uh a photo from that concert like a signed one worth like 1200 bucks wow that's cool <laughs> yeah yeah mark have, have you ever had a picture published in a magazine when you hand in all the photographs, just say for a magazine spread, that you thought wasn't that good and they picked it and published it. Yeah, I don't let it go that far because I I take the photos and I edit them and I, I edit them very critically because I, you know, cherish my relationships with the, with the bands and I wouldn't, you know, want a photo. It's always a flattering photograph. And, uh, you know, the the one time that that did happen that was out of my control was when I first started shooting with Circus, and I was I did a cover shoot with Ozzy Osbourne, and it was supposed to I did a few different shoots. One was uh, him was supposed to be just with boxing gloves. We had a section called in that magazine called most um, the the Circus Yearbook, and it was just a you know a, a funny satirical play off of different you know, people in, in bands and everyone had their own little title. And Ozzy had the title of most athletic and we could use to jump around up and down on the show. So I brought a pair of boxing gloves with me. And needless to say, I didn't expect him to come out in the shoot with a tutu <laughs> and a, a pink tutu. So I shot it in, in, in color and it was supposed to only be black and white. And, and that film I gave to the, to the, magazine the whole shoot because they hired me for it and they and i took out the ones i didn't like but you know there were good photos of ozzy and the tutu but i didn't think they were going to use it for a cover that wasn't the plan and then when they did use it for the cover um the osborne camp wasn't too fond about it because i you know i guess they felt i misled them or whatever and it was only supposed to be a black and white and and then and then I found out, and then later on, within a few months, we became pretty close because they got a lot of attention from it. And, and then from then on, me and Ozzy did a lot of uh, shoots with funness to it. So it kind of gave, that, that shoot kind of gave Ozzy the, uh, you know, it kind of brought out his, his 
character as being like kind of like a fun loving, you know, anything goes kind of guy. Mm. Did did the magazines more or less leave you alone to film whatever way you wanted? Like what was the pressure more from say the band's management and the label rather than the magazine or which way did it work? Uh well, Faces magazine, we always had a little concept because we wanted we wanted to be like very Rolling Stoneish where, you know, the covers were kind of like would really stand out instead of having like multiple uh multiple images on the cover, we would have um, you know, just one big image. So, you know, we wanted to make it different and stand out and people talk about it. So we would always like do something different. Uh you know, like with Kevin Dubrow from Quiet Riot, we tied him up and put a gag in his mouth. You know, with Ozzy, we uh, we dressed him up like a, a mad housewife because we played off of Die of a Madman, the album title. And it was a Mother's Day issue because the, the issue was coming out, on you know, in the month that Mother's Day was. So mm-hmm. we, we always did that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, otherwise, yeah, I mean, I usually... You know, we always had, you know, it was always me and with the faces, it was Michael Kirk, who was the editor, but it was always, you know, came from me and, and whoever I was working with at the time. Mm. Do you still use film at all or is everything done digitally now? Like, do you miss using film if you don't use it anymore? Not really, because there was a lot of stress back then of, is the film going to come out? Is it properly exposed? You have to go through the, you know, if you're traveling, you got to get it out of the thing for x-rays. It was a pain in the neck, you know. It, it, it's always it's always cool to have your hands on it and look at it on a light table, and see everything there, which is what I do now with my archives. But it's easier to edit when you have the photos as opposed to if you're shooting, and you're limited when film. You, you, you can't afford to shoot, you know, a thousand images. You might shoot like you know twenty rolls of film, maybe a maybe you know a few hundred images. And then the editing process with digital is a real pain in the neck because it just takes it takes longer to edit the photos because you have so many images to uh, to look at and edit to find and there's there's more images more great images but it's just it's just tedious doing it you know just because of it doesn't cost any money for film mm-hmm. uh, so I, I prefer the digital now of course you know I, I don't mind editing my pictures I can always sit in front of the TV I mean it takes you know, it takes longer to edit it than to shoot it. Okay. Okay. Mark, how do you build trust with the person you're filming? Um, was that something you learned over time? Because the more musicians you work with, the more you got to know them on a personal level. Well, it's all about, you know, trusting and it's all about your personality. It's all about, you know, just being yourself and hopefully it works with that artist. You can't like, it's, it, you can't really put on a front on, on who you are. And, you know, unless you're a good actor, uh, but usually it's your personality. And, and I was very low key. Uh, I just was honored being around all these people. And, uh, and, you know, I, I, I created a name for myself in my early twenties. And then when the band started becoming who they, you know, before they were like legends at Motley Crue or, uh, Bon Jovi or, you know, any of those bands that ended up playing arenas, uh, I was there in the beginning. I mean, I shot John when he was 18, you know, I shot Molly Crew when they were like just turned 20, you know, and, you know, in 82, one of their first shoots they did. So that, when it comes to that, then I'm the big guy. And we kind of, we, we get, we get to the top together again, you know, but, you know, with the bigger artists and I'm, and I'm with that, I'm like this with the, with the new artists too. I'm just, you know, laid back guy and, like to hang out and make new friends. Every time I do a new shoot, I have like four or five new friends and still to this day. Mm. When you're shooting an artist you've never done before, do you ask people what the band are like per, per, like from a personality standpoint so you can kind of know what you're walking into before you do it? No, I do the opposite. I, if, even if I don't even know who the band is, like cause sometimes I would get hired to shoot bands that I don't know. I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know who the singer is because I don't want it to affect where I position them or or how I treat them. So, you know, for all I know, the drummer could be the guy that's, that I put up front or, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, there could be a, you know, that's what I like to introduce myself to do. And generally, I get whatever vibe I get from them, I usually pull the right people out in the, where, where they're more dominant in the photograph. 
Mm. Mark, how do you work with someone who doesn't want to be there? Because you mentioned in the book about a photo shoot you did with Danzig. That can't be the only one that that happened. Uh, probably is actually. <laughs> oh, cool. well, that's good for you then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how do I handle it? I say, okay, one more. Let's take a few more photos and we're done. Okay. Have you ever walked? Yeah. Have you ever Have you ever walked out of a photo shoot? No, no. And the Danzig thing is like I was there until they were done too. I mean, you know, I was hired for the shoot. I was professional, but I I didn't give them my extra Mark Weiss. You know, like. I didn't give them more because they didn't want more. So I, I, I cut the shoot when they were, they felt they had what they had. I didn't give them my extra because usually my shoots go pretty long and the bands usually stick around because they know the results we get. And, and if they do it all the, if they do the more they do with me now, the less they have to do when they're on the road. Hmm. So I always do multiple backgrounds and different clothing changes. And, you know, like in the Twisted Sister was almost 24 hour shoot. Uh, it was 22 hours actually. Wow. And, you know, they're pretty grueling sometimes, but the results, they get it done. And then, uh, and then they see the results in the magazines or the album covers or merch or tour books. Hmm. Mark, is it difficult to stay professional when you're filming someone who was probably a hero of yours when you were growing up? Uh, no, not really. I mean, it's, I just treat everyone the same and, and they treat me the same. Like, when I first shot Ozzy, I was only 21, I think. And, uh, and he was more, he seemed more nervous than me or not nervous, but he seemed more like, you know, is this okay, Mark? Like he was, like he was actually, you know, feeling, making sure I got what I wanted. He gave me the respect that, that I kind of needed and kind of gave me the confidence that kind of helped me, you know, go through the rest of the other shoots. I mean, that was, that was, and, and it kind of gave me this kind of like, the little power thing that I can actually, you know, tell Ozzy to move his head to the left and move forward. And he does it. And then, and, and then the results, cause I, 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 the one thing I do have is I have the ability to just to know how the, the artist looks its best and I know how to position them. That's just one thing I know how to do. It's just, to me, it's like, it's just like riding a bike. And, uh, that's one of my gifts, I guess. I'm not a very technical guy, but there's not much technical ability when you just see someone and you just know uh, the way the light hits you and you just move them a little bit. And, you know, I mean, a lot of my, don't get me wrong. A lot of my shoots and my album covers are very detailed and are very, are technical. You know, it's just a lot of work and it's, it has to be done. Gels, lights, smoke, um, you know, but, uh, it's pretty much just, trial and error i've always i've always managed to just uh to go that route mm. mark are you someone that always wants input from the person you're photographing that you don't you don't mind them throwing ideas at you i i, I crave that i want that because i want what they want and i want to give results that they're gonna you know be happy with they're the legends they're they're the ones that are the, making people happy the fans i'm making fans happy through them. So I kind of live my, my photographs through through their performances and their, their persona. Hmm. So which musicians, in, in your opinion, give you the most advice and, and which ones are very quiet that they want you to control the shoot? Motley Crue, Nikki Six is very, knows what he wants. He, and every shoot we've ever done, we've always been collaborative, but it always started with him. Same with Twisted Sister, Mark Mendoza, the bass player from Twisted his concept was the stay hungry cover and we collaborated on that. And then the next one that he did come out and play the Snyder, the singer had a vision and we collaborated on that and, you know, both very successful, uh, pieces of art we created with Bon Jovi. Uh, it was, uh, their ideas and I made them come to life. Uh, so, you know, it's just, it's, it works, it works both, whatever, you know, if they're looking for ideas, I'll give them ideas. And if, if they already have one, I'll just make it to what they, uh, what they, what they want to see. Hmm. Mark, what's your definition of a rock star? And do they even exist anymore? Yeah, definitely. Uh, a rock star is someone that where fans, you know, uh, adore you, you know, and they, they look at you on stage and just wish you were that they were you or they do you. Uh, fans knowing the artist and and just uh, you know it's about a fantasy. So rock stars do exist. Everyone I, that's in my book are rock stars. 
you can be a rock star playing in a club. You know, it's just to the success that you make it. If there's, you know, it, it, you know if you're a rock star. I mean, a, to me, a rock star is someone that has music, can relate what they're doing to the fans, and have a persona. I mean, to me, a rock star is a persona. The 80s had a lot of them. Uh, yeah, uh, a lot of bands in the 90s, they were rock stars, I guess. They want to call themselves rock stars. But I think, I feel like the true rock stars ended in the end of the end of the decade. I mean, the true, true rock stars were in the 60s and 70s. And, you, know, you know, Robert Plant, Jim Morrison, you know, Janis Joplin, you know, all, you know, all those guys. And today there's there's rock stars but they're not rock stars you know like the rappers consider themselves rock stars even pop artists can consider themselves rock stars so today rock stars don't even need rock stars mm. mark are there any musicians from the 80s that you never got a chance to shoot that you wanted to not the 80s no you got okay, the, you, you did them all very good <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, now, a few years ago, I did a project on Kerrang! magazine uh, in the 80s, and I spoke to like nine or ten of the writers, like Mick Wall and Xavier Russell and Sylvie Simmons and Derek Oliver, all these guys. And yeah. normally, they used, when they went on the road, they'd bring a photographer with them. But one of the questions I asked them all was a horror story when they went on the road that nothing happened the way it was supposed to. Now, you would have gone on the road with a lot of bands. Is there one that stands out for you? Not really. Uh, well, um, no, not really. No. Um, I mean, the only thing, there's one thing I tell in my book. I was shooting the Scorpions at an outdoor festival, and the Aerosmith was playing, and I was having some problems with Aerosmith's uh, management giving me photo access because I was their photographer back before this new manager who was managing them. And uh, they kicked me out of the photo pit uh physically uh, after shooting one uh, one song and it was the last time i shot the band until uh they fired the guy 10 years later yeah so that's that's kind of that's not i wasn't on the road but that was just a, an event that happened that that was not a good experience for me mm. now one of the things you have in the book is the moscow music peace festival that you went over um I remember at the time it was shown on Sky TV. Mick Wall had a documentary on it. Uh, they interviewed some of the bands that were over there talking about Moscow. How bleak was the city back then? Uh, you know what? We couldn't tell, really, because when we got there, we were greeted like the Beatles just came off the plane. You know, I was on the plane with them, and there was 40 rock stars coming off. And there was an entourage and all the fans. They knew we were coming, so everywhere we went, you know, we everyone had a smile on their face with rock t-shirts. It just seemed like a, you know, a U.S. concert, all the hype and, and everything. So it really, we didn't, and when we walked around the streets, it was so beautiful with all the architecture and, and people. And, you know, cause we went around the, the, the you know, the town and uh, we took pictures with the bands and, you know, there was a lot of tourists there. So, you, you know, we didn't really see all the, any, any repression. Hmm. Hmm. Is there a lot of camaraderie amongst rock photographers? Because I've only had two on the show, and I'm doing it nearly ten years. I've had Bill Hale on, and I've had Mick Hudson on. Is there a lot of competition there now? Or was there a lot of competition back then to get photo shoots? Well, yeah. Back then, uh, I was the new kid in town, pretty much in the rock circuit. There was, to me, in every decade, there's like three photographers that are really stand out. Uh, to do what kind of I do. So uh, in the 80s, it was me, Neil, Niels Lozauer from the West Coast, and Ross Halpin from, from England. Uh -huh. And, and you know, Ross is a little older than me, and, and Neil was a bit older. And uh, Neil started with Ben Halen, so that's how he got his feet wet, and or a little more notoriety and access. And then uh, I came along in, you know, pretty much 1980, 81, really, when I started working heavily for circus. And I just wanted everything, you know, and I think they wanted everything, too. And then when, when we all couldn't have everything at the same time because we all wanted the same shoots or the same, you know, if someone did a video shoot or someone was doing an album cover, you know, we all wanted to do it. And it was, 
it's a creative competition. You know, it, it kind of like put us all, you know, and we all stepped up to make sure the other one didn't get it. And we all got it at the end of the day, you know, I mean, I feel that, you know, uh, I rose above those guys, you know, I, I shot al- my album covers, you know, like the Slippery Run Wet and the Stay Hungry and a bunch of others. They really stood out and they still do. Uh, and to me, album covers are really important to do because they just last forever. Now they're on digital format. You know, when you look at your phone or your computer, my images are there. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, but, you know, those guys, you know, they, you know, today were, you know, we're all okay with each other. Uh, back then, we just didn't, you know, hang out. Now we, we, you know, hang out. I just hung out with Niels Lozauer on on the Monsters of Rock cruise. We're all good. And uh, he invited me to his birthday party. So you know, and I don't even think Neil even feels like because Neil's the kind of guy where he just is a partier. We're all so different, you know. Like, so yeah, I don't think Neil Neil feels the same way I did about it because I was the new guy. He probably felt a little more confident in what he was doing, and you know, he had his LA studio, and I was the guy that was trying to get to be the best. Huh. Uh, and Ross was, you know, was very bossy. I mean, they even call him Ross the boss, I think, sometimes, you know. He's, he yells at people, he screams at them, and, uh-huh. you know, and, I, and I do the opposite. I, I kid with them, I tickle them, you know, I whisper in their ears, you know, I make them laugh. I don't say anything sometimes. So we're all so different. And, you know, it's like when a band, a band has three three different photographers like having three three different girlfriends you know whoever you know whoever they feel like they have on one on the road to spend a couple of weeks with on like you know to break up the monotony of their tours then they'll either call me neil or ross did any of them ever say to you the musicians that neil or ross does it this way and you wanted to do it a different way if you know what i'm saying uh well we all have our own different approaches and okay i mean i definitely have a like i used to love gels and and smoke you know so a lot of my photo shoots have, are very colorful in the background where they, they don't really do that um i think ross is more of a straight with a white background and i think neil just kind of does kind of straight stuff so i just wanted a little bit i wanted my photography to do a little bit more fantasy so i i feel like my my works does stand out a bit hmm. mark if the 80s was the decade that rocked how would you define the 90s when it talk comes to your career the decade that um, didn't rock for me. <laughs> so you were like the bands where you were associated with all of these bands and a lot of the companies didn't want you to do photo shoots. Is that the way it worked? No, you know, I started doing shoots with like Soundgarden, Alice in Chains and, you know, I started getting assignments for magazines. I knew I had a, you know, I liked the music, you know, and then I didn't, I wasn't crazy about the persona. I wasn't crazy about flannel shirts and all that because I used to, Dressed like the rockers, you know, with my, uh, you know, my trash and vaudeville black jeans and my, you know, rock shirts or whatever. So, you know, when I started shooting them, they just, they just weren't open to photography. You know, they, they didn't really care about their image. So it just reflects like, and then it kind of killed the magazine business because they didn't want photographs or they know they had to take them every once in a while, but they didn't really didn't want to, they didn't want to be pop stars like the rock stars were. Hmm. So that that whole era of photography and music where MTV, you know, kind of helped, uh, kind of died out with the 90s and that music. And uh, yeah, so I, I kind of had to hide my Twisted Sister and Cinderella album covers. So I, like, I thought I'd be able to like, you know, brag about them, but really until... 2000 when bands like Sum 41 and Blink 182 and all those bands that came out later, they were all, they were kids when that came out. So I found out that, you know, when I told them I did those album covers, they were like, oh man, I was like 12 when that came out. I was my favorite, you know. And so I kind of like started coming back full circle. Now, Mark, you had the best seat in the house for a lot of the live shows that you shot in the 80s when everything was over the top. Who were the best bands you saw put on the best live show? Uh, Judas Priest uh, always was good. They always, you know, they had a lot of theatrical, uh, uh, you know, they 
everyone they brought lasers everyone had lasers at one point you know mm-hmm. i love the lasers. i always love the lasers um you know motley crew always had this you know in the beginning of the 80s they had the show and then they ended up with when they did uh dr feel good they always had some good sets and props and the big girls 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 they had the motorcycle blow-ups and they had the girls on stage with the nurses outfit i mean you know so definitely motley crew uh i'd have to say motley crew if i were to pick one it'd be motley crew mm. you know the way now the photo shoots and live shows you're only allowed to shoot the first three songs um did that apply to you at all uh very rarely you know because of the trust that i had with the artist uh you know, they would give me access to shoot the whole show backstage, on stage, on the side of the stage. You know, sometimes, you know, like Steven Tyler from Aerosmith would drag me out being in the photo pit and he just grabbed my hand. He goes, you know, bring me on stage in front of him, you know, just to get what I wanted to get, you know. Hmm. Um, yeah. So final question, Mark. Do musicians ever reach out to you personally for old photographs? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Recently, in the last year, you know, Steven Tyler uh, saw a photo that I posted on Facebook with, I think it was, um, it was with uh, Steve Marriott. And this is in like 82 or something uh, when I shot it. And I, because I, I post a lot of my photos on, on my website and my social media uh anniversaries and birthdays and so that's when i that's when i dig back in my files and put up a new shot each year mm. and he saw it he saw it and he's like and, he, and, he, and then he called me up and he goes uh did you uh how long have i known you for you know and i said well i for how long have you been shooting me for i said well since i was 16 but we first we met when i was like you know 20 you know and then he wanted to see all my archives and and you know so i i archived a bunch for him to look at nice uh, but you know tom you know a lot of the bands that I, I i talked to you know dave bryant from bon jovi uh you know tom Kiefer, zach of course zach wild sebastian bach is very you know good friend i you know i i helped get him in the band uh skid row um and uh, a lot of them i just had a, a big stream don doc and uh, I mean, most of the artists that are in my book, I'm still, you know, I still talk to them on a personal level. Hmm. You must be getting labels reaching out to you as well, because you have all these anniversary editions of albums coming out and they're looking for photographs. Yeah, that's how I, my bread and butter, you know, or not my bread and butter, I should say that's that's my uh, icing on the cake, you know, it's a little bit of icing here and there. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, like Rob, uh, Judas Priest, uh, Rob did the forward in my book and I'm close to their management company and, you know, they're doing uh, their 50th anniversary book on Judas Priest. And they asked for specific photographs, uh, like the live aid photos and video shoots. And when uh, the seats got ripped out of Madison Square Garden, they wanted me to, you know, see if I had any photos, which I do. So, yeah, I mean, I have to be more more aggressive. And I think with this book being out, might take it to some uh, newbie people in the business that might not know who I am and, and might reference the book and then reach out to me that way. So, you know, it's definitely something that uh, I want to pursue more and be more diligent about it because I know there's all money to be made there. Hmm. Well, Mark, give out all the the sites where people can get in touch with you and buy a copy of the book. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, thedecadethatrock.com, I have, uh, you can buy just the book. You can buy uh, the book signed, and I personalize it to them. Uh, and then I have little bundles. I have a one with a T-shirt, one with centerfolds. I always love centerfolds. The first picture I ever got in a magazine was the centerfold of Stephen Tyler in 1978. So I always had a thing for centerfolds. So I, I I made two centerfolds, one of Lita Ford and one of Vince Neil, and they come in there, you know, free as a little extra. And then I have my my rock cards. They're postcards. They're, you know, you can actually put a stamp and mail them if you want, or just collect them. Huh. So I uh, those are included in the bundles, and there's it's just a fun way of marketing. And there's prints for sale too that I find limited time only. You know, at a, at a fraction of the cost that I sell on my other website. Um, but the decade that rock dot com. And uh, on my social media that I'm really pushing is the Decade That Rocked on Instagram and on Decade That Rocked on Facebook, along with my Mark Weiss photography on Facebook and Instagram. And 
I'll end by saying, uh, giving a plug to my new TV show called The Weiss Guy that I just released my first episode. It's 90% done. It's, it's basically about these uh, two guys, Creeper and Jesse, who stalk me, stalk the Weiss Guy. They go, they try to sneak backstage and they try to get me backstage and they go to my house and crash their parties. And uh, so we turned this into like an episodic adventure of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And uh, that's out uh, on my YouTube channel called uh, the, uh, the Decade That Rocked, along with a lot of interviews of rock stars talking about the decade and talking about me and our relationship and other fun things, you know, the fans and all that. So really, my thedecadethatrocked.com is kind of like my brand, my home base where you can find a lot. Of, everything's like nice and organized there. Oh. Like this, this interview will be on there. I have a news section. And then I have a section called Featured Videos where I'll put, you know, just videos I think are, you know, cool from the 80s, like an interview with Sebastian. His first interview was uh, when he was in the Skid Row. Bon Jovi on MTV, you know, in the 80s. You know, just things that, you know, I built this site for me to enjoy. And I feel like what I enjoy, there's, there's millions of other people that will enjoy the same way I do. Because I'm, I'm a true fan of that decade of music, you know, whether it's rock, hard rock thrash rock or pop rock or hair band hair rock or whatever you want to call it mm, mm. It's, all rock, it's all rock it's all rock that's why it's called the decade that rock i got one more question mark just came to mind you're obviously someone the way you've been talking there that you own all the photographs you've taken now i've heard stories about bands wanting to take ownership of photographers photos is that something you just refuse to do well, no, I've, I've been offered, you know, if someone wants to make me an offer on buying my archives, uh, you know, I, I would want to have some kind of uh, involvement in what they're going to do with them. But, you know, if the, the price is right. I mean, I'd be more than willing to, you know, to have someone because I'm 60, I'll be 61 next week. And, you know, I do want the photographs to end up somewhere where there's going to be a company or somebody that's going to take my photographs and continue on with it. And I, I can't will it to my kids because they're, they have their own lives, you know, they're, and they're not really interested in my business. You know, I, I, I don't want them to just end up in, in my garage and then they don't know what to do with it. I mean, I do have some things worked out where if God forbid something should happen to me that it kind of will end up in that way, but it'd be really nice to know when I'm alive that uh, it's in good hands and I can know for generations to come that it will, it will, my photographs will live on. Hmm. Well, Mark, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for all the photos over the years. As someone who was buying magazines, that was the only way I could really see a lot of these bands. Oh, well, you know, I'm glad you enjoyed the photos. And and when you get the book, uh, you know, that'd be awesome. You know, let me know what you think of it. Mm, sure, Mark. All right. Have a good rest of the day. And thanks for talking to me. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I was definitely excited when Richie told me that we were going to be having Mark on the show. I can just remember back in the day, reading all those magazines, back when they had those magazines and seeing Mark's name on picture after picture after picture. So, uh, you know, add him as number three of uh, photographers we've had on Focus on Metal. And as Mark was talking about in the interview, if you want to get a copy of his book, All Done Up, Right to You, or one of the bundles he has as well, you go up to thedecadethatrocked.com. So on uh, June 12th, that's actually the day that I'm mixing this uh, this particular episode just so that I keep everything in line. Today is the day that House of Lords puts out their brand new release called New World, New Eyes. And to find out everything that's going on with the band, the release, you know, prospects for live shows, and answer a lot of unanswered questions, Richie is talking with vocalist James Christian, grilling him on all kinds of stuff. So uh, with that, I'm going to turn it back over again to Richie, only this time talking with uh, returning guest James Christian of House of Lords. Yes. Hey, James. Hey, yeah, how you doing? Good, good. Thank you. Yeah, where are you? In Florida? I'm in West Palm, yeah. Nice. Nice and warm down there. Yeah. Where are you? I'm just outside of Boston. Outside of Boston. Right. What's where my hometown is, Connecticut. Hmm. So, James, I'm going to talk about the new album, New World, New Eyes. Um, I love it, but I want to go back to 2006 when you did World Upside Down with Jimmy uh-huh. and BJ and, and Chris McCarville. Um, yeah. 
you've done eight albums in 14 years, but when you did the first one with them, how long, yeah. did, you, how long did you think you'd be doing House of Lords music? I didn't think I'd be doing it that many times, <laughs> that many albums. I thought maybe one or two, and then, because um, I just didn't know if there was enough. For me, I would have done it forever, but I didn't know if there was enough of a market to sustain that many records uh, because markets are fickle. People change, music changes, and um, but, but I was wrong. Mm. And when did you know that Jimmy and BJ were going to stay with you for the duration? I really didn't know. I just knew that uh, the, the label had contacted me and uh, his first question to me, uh, the president of the label was, can you make me a record that picks up where House of Lords left off in nineteen in the 90s? And I said, of course I can do that. And, and uh, you know, there was no doubt in my mind, but I did mention that I, I didn't know if I could make that happen with the original members of House of Lords. And he, he said, uh, I, I just want a record that I can call House of Lords. So we needed the name, we had the name. Uh, and uh, he said, I'll leave the rest up to you. So I reached out to Jimmy Bell because we came from the same state. And we knew, I knew him as one of the best players out there. And uh, so when I spoke with him, you know, he told me he was a songwriter also. He started sending me tracks. And I loved the tracks, and I started working on them. And the next thing we knew, we were putting that record, uh, World Upside Down, together. Mm. Now... Is it an album-by-album album deal you have with Frontiers that you don't know now, even after this record comes out, whether you're going to be doing another one? No, they they sign us two albums at a time. Okay. And is, is, this the first, is this the first one of the deal or the second? This is the first. Okay. And they're, they're looking for, what, one every two years? Well, they actually, they've been doing like one every year and a half. Um, and I, I don't personally like doing them that close together. So this one from Saint of the Lost Souls was almost two and a half years, if I'm not mistaken. It might be even more. I took a lot of time and um, a couple of reasons. I just wanted to make sure that I was doing something that was, you know, not just throwing it out there, writing a song. You know, we all, as songwriters, we can write all day long. It doesn't mean what we're doing is good. So I needed to step back and make sure what we were going to do was going to be worthy of the name and the legacy of what we were going to do following the record's choir. Mm. Frontiers have uh, they've signed you to a couple of solo albums as well. Um, yeah. Was that surprising that they signed you for the solo stuff because you were bringing out albums at House of Lords so regularly? Yes, it did. Um, but their, um, I guess their reasoning was um, one of their favorite records that they released was a, a reissue of um, an album I did called Rude Awakening, which was a total solo record. And they liked that idea that I was able to, to release records as a solo artist at the same time being the front man for um, the House of Lords, which they had. So um, I think that the record sales are always much stronger with House of Lords than they are with James Christian, but there's still a market for the James Christian album, and so that's why they still do it. Mm. James, I wanted to get into the songwriting. and l Let's talk about mm -hmm. House of Lords and your solo stuff. Are, are you writing at the same time for both, or do you separate them? Um, I write for one thing at a time. Um, if something happens that um, after you finish something, it might not for the band, which happens lots of times. Then the album gets put on, you know, the song is put on hold and maybe used on the solo record. But that's only happened one or two times. Um, most of the time, if it wasn't right for House of Lords, it's in my catalog and it's not used for anything else. Mm. You know, it's there, but I haven't released it yet. I've got about 10 songs that are songs that were um, recorded, you know, not properly recorded, but demoed. And um, I don't know if they'll ever get released. I don't understand why I would. I, I know a lot of people do like like to release the, the lost tapes or the ba the basement tapes. Uh -huh. But I mean, I mean there's got to be a reason why they're in the basement. 
you know? And so I just don't know whether I would want to release that just for money. Mm. No. You know, somebody did it. Somebody did it with House of Lords. They did an anthology. I didn't even know about it. I never even knew that somebody was actually going to take these tapes and release them. But there were things we did with House of Lords. It was, you know, so it wasn't really my property. It was House of Lords property. I think that happens a lot that the artists, because they don't own the material, they're, they're unaware that something comes out until somebody tells them. Yeah, it does happen. It happens quite often. You're right. It, it kind of sucks because you'd probably want to be involved in it in some way. Well, yeah, it would be nice to know, number one. And number two, you know, I don't think they, they were probably, there's a reason why they're in the basement. They weren't that good, you know? Yeah. So it's just like, it's, it, I, I just don't understand it. I always like to put my best foot forward. And maybe that's not, maybe there are other people that are more forgiving and saying, no, I want to hear it all. I want to see where you started and what you did or what you were thinking. I want to see you suck. I don't know. Mm. I, like I'll I give you an example. Like Whitesnake have released a couple of box sets, and they're, they're yeah. of, of an of an individual album, like Slip of the Tongue or the 1987 record, and there's like six or seven CDs in it, and one of them is demos, and it it tracks the demo from the very beginning to the very end, and it breaks down the song, mm. and it's it is fascinating to listen to it, but I do know what you're saying. Um, you mm. might only listen to it once and never listen to it again. Right. There's only one band that I've ever wanted to look, listen to their early work, and that was the Beatles. And there was a reason for it, because I, there was just something about that phenomenon that I had to know. I mean, I was a Beatles fanatic. So I wanted to know, how did these guys get to be so prolific as songwriters? What were they doing prior? And if, and if you listen to what they, were, what they sounded like, they were a regular club band. I mean, they, were, they weren't bad. But some of the stuff was just like, you know, like the regular Joe. They weren't bigger than life, but they became bigger than life. And um, that was interesting to me in the, in the history of that group. Hmm. But I don't know if I want to know that about anybody else. It's hmm. the only band that I can think of. Okay. Now, when you're asked to do a new House of Lords record, we'll go, go into the very beginning of it, James. Do you contact Jimmy and BJ and Chris and tell them what overall direction you're looking for for the record? Um, just a very, um, a very minor, minor suggestions. Like, uh, I'm not a big fan of double-time songs. You know, uh, we had a couple on earlier records, and um, one being Swimming with the Sharks. Now, it was a great song. I love the song. It's just the tempo is so fast for a listener in a live environment. And I look at it this way. When they listen to it, they don't get it. They don't really get it. You'd have to really be looking for a song like that or a tempo like that. I like things to be mid-tempo to a, to a locker, uh, up-tempo, maybe at uh, 125, 130. Anything over 130, it gets to be a little, little too quick tempo, BPMs, mm. or beats per minute. Yeah. yeah. Are, are, are you saying to Jimmy and, and the guys... I want 20 ideas. I want 10 ideas, 15 ideas. Are you limiting it at all? No, I never limit. I would never limit anybody in a songwriting capacity. If Jimmy wants to give me 30 songs, I'll take all 30 and we'll, we'll work from there. But normally it's usually 15 to 20 songs that get written or that get submitted. I shouldn't say get written. And uh, out of those, we'll find a record. Mm. Did you ever consider maybe getting Jimmy down to write with you in the same room? Well, we did, I think, once or twice do that. And Jimmy, is a, you know, he works best on his own when he wants to come up with his riffs. And I'm really good at dissecting. So if he gives me a song and it's got tw 10 parts in it, because Jimmy likes to elaborate with different parts, then I can take those sections and start cutting everything up where he, there might be a part that he said, this is the chorus. And I'll say, no, that's not the chorus. This part's the chorus or, you know, vice versa, or this is the bridge or start the song off to do something completely different than the idea he had. But as long as I have ideas to work with, get up and then say, now play this. In other words, re-record it, but here's the arrangement. So it really works out well for me, so I don't have to sit there through the process, because I like the melodic process, where I'm actually just 
singing melodies and working on that. That's where I like to work. Hmm. James, how long do you work on a melody or lyrics before dropping it? Because I've spoken to other musicians, and if they're not feeling something in, say, 10 or 15 minutes or maybe half an hour, they, they, just, they just drop it and they'll move on to something else. Are you like that? No, I'm not, because I'm... Um, uh, and, and listen, sometimes things do happen where you get it uh, pretty pretty quickly. Like the, uh, I was mentioning to another interviewer that Chemical Rush, the longest, it took me the longest to do that song than any of the others. And it was only because I needed to, to tie up or make um, a cohesive song out of different parts. So I had to get the melodies to all work. And not only that, the lyric, which was uh, part of the lyric was written by a co-writer, Richard Hymas. But the pre-chorus, I needed something different. I actually turned on the mic and sang that part. And what came out of my mouth ended up being the melody and the lyric. And what was really, I guess, was a happenstance because I didn't know it was going to happen that way. I was just trying to figure out what I would sing there. So that does happen, and that's magical. Love that. But now, most of the time, I'm spending a lot of time on the lyrics and uh, working with collaborators on lyrics and the melodies, which are the most important part of the aspect of uh, a song. My melodies, and I'm proud of them, they really have a structure and they have a purpose. Not just singing. There is, you know, and to me, melodies have got to have, and you know it when you hear it. You hear a melody, you go, now that's really, that's what I want, you know? Mm. Well, at what stage are you bringing in the outside songwriter after what you've just said there? Are you bringing them in from the beginning or do you bring them in when you're stuck? No, no, I bring, I, I will work with, uh, when I work with a lyricist or um, or a um, somebody on melodies, we're working together because I have to know, I have an idea, this is where I'm going with it. And then they'll say, well, I've got an actor here. So we collaborate, put the ideas together. So when we write, if there's, um, when you say royalties and splits, we already know what our splits are. So it doesn't matter if somebody's 60-40 or 70-30. We're collaborating on a song, so I, I take the best of what happens in, in in a song, and and as far as melodies go, I'm not. I, the most important thing is that the song turn out great for everyone, because it doesn't mean anything if you put on your song written, produced, by James Christian. What good is it if it's not great? You know, you want it to be something that you're proud of. Hmm. Now. How often have you gone back to Jimmy and asked him to change his guitar parts on tracks? Uh, I do that quite a bit, and not because of anything but uh, arrangement ideas. Um, or I'll say, you know, now that we've rearranged this song, and now that I've, you know, cut up your arrangement, the solo doesn't fit what we have now. So you need to do something different. That happens quite often. He's so. And he's not, he doesn't have a problem with it because he understands. He has, you know, he has ideas, has a guitar player, and he writes, you know, writes great riffs, great solos, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's the structure of the song. Mm. So changes do happen all the time. Mm. Now, what influences what songwriter you use? Because you've used multiple outside songwriters on different records over time. Yeah. Well, I like to go to the people that I'm comfortable working with. Uh, Mark Baker was uh, a songwriter I worked with on, on a few records in Wicked Demons Down together, but also Mark Sparrow was on that record. And um, on this particular record, I uh, worked with Mark Sparrow because we did such good work on the um, Demons Down album that I thought, what better guy to collaborate with than, than Mark? So when we worked together, we decided we would do maybe one or, or two songs. And after we started, it ended up being eight songs. Wow. So we obviously were really enjoying the process quite a bit. Hmm. James, do you think you're tougher on yourself as a lyricist or a singer? Singer. Absolutely a singer. Because I'm, I'm worried about every breath. I'm worried, not worried. I need it to count. I mean, I, I have to tell you, when I listen to a vocalist, I can tell you where they sway or didn't care or whatever. And then you can hear other singers where they've got it down to a science 
and they know exactly what they're going to do. Their feel is correct. Their emotion is correct. Everything about it is correct. That, to me, is uh, the most important thing. From the moment, first line to the end, the melodies and the emotion have got to be there. And that sometimes gets to be a little much when you wonder. You can't second-guess yourself. You've got to listen and say, I know I got it. Mm. So you're a perfectionist then? Yes. Probably uh, when I work with my wife also, she gets a little crazy with me because I do I do make people do things over and over again. I just say, it's right, but it's not. It's not. And until so you can say it's great as a person, as a person doing it, then you, you know, you know, somebody else might have a different opinion, but at least you know in your heart that you feel it's great. Oh, it's nice to have a singer like Robin Beck to back you up. Well, yeah. There's, <laughs> there's, never, there's never a time I ever have to say, well, Robin, that isn't great. But she is a great singer. Yeah. But she does listen to me as a, you know, as, as um, a producer. And I say, listen, I'm listening to this 50 times. You're listening to it maybe twice when you do your tracks. So trust me on it. And so usually, most of the time, she'll say, yeah, you're right. But uh, other times, you know, she'll fight me tooth and nail on a part. So we have we have to deal with that. But if she feels that passionate about it, where she's going to fight me, most likely I'm going to let it go. Mm. So, Jim. But, uh, she, she's an exception to the rule on that, because I'm telling you, she really is a great singer. Yeah. James, how has your voice changed over the years? Because a lot of singers, you know, as they get older, their voice deepens a little bit, maybe gets a little bit more raspy. Yeah, well, mine was always raspy. Even in my earlier career, it was raspy. The thing that's changed is there were notes that I was hitting in um, on the first three albums, which I would have done laying on my back, smoking a cigarette and having a scotch. That ain't never going to happen again because voice changes and you get, as the voice ages, it um, the voice chords get a little stiffer. So those notes require a lot of suppleness, uh, a lot of uh, warming up. So I try to probably stay away from those notes more than I would as opposed to being at a point in my career where I felt like I could do anything. And those were great moments. I wish they would last forever, but they don't. Oh. You know, I There's a definite um, vocal restriction, but not because... You don't you don't restrict your voice. If you're a singer, you use the best parts of your voice to make that song work. You know, and if I feel that I can't do that, then I've got to restructure that song or not even do that song. Mm. James, I've I've been getting into the habit of asking singers recently, what's the sickest they've ever done a live show? Is there one that stands out for you? Yeah, I remember it like it did, like it happened. I was uh, doing a concert in Berlin. And we were doing a festival with Ozzy Osbourne, and I'd gotten the flu when we were there. And there's no way I was going to cancel this because it was a big show. And uh, I remember my road manager, um, Walter Wilson, came up to me and he said, "Well, we're going to you're going to have to do this show, but I'm bringing in a doctor who's going to be able to give you a shot that's going to give you enough." I had no idea what it was, but I, I, I imagine it was adrenaline. Because once he gave me the shot, I, I went from being lethargic and wanting to go to sleep to jumping out of my seat, you know. So for at least an hour and a half to two hours, I had all the energy in the world and I was able to sing. And I don't know how, but I remember that day. And I remember after that, we had to cancel three or four shows because I, I felt really ill afterwards. Mm. James, so, I, I want to ask you about a festival you did in Holland in 89, the Arachok Festival, because I remember I interviewed Mike, who was the, the guy who ran the festival last week. And on the, on the bill was, it was Queensryche Vengeance, Crimson Glory, Flotsam and Jetsam, House of Lords, Letterwolf and Wolfsbane. Um, what, what are your memories of that show? Because that's a very varied bill. Yeah. Uh, here's what I remember. Flotsam and Jetsam, Queensryche, and Leatherwolf. That's it. I don't remember anybody else on the bill, but I do remember those three groups. And I remember our show and our performance, and I remember that I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I don't know if there's any uh, recordings of that show, 
but um, the actual festival, um, I do remember. Okay. Well, here's what Mike. Here's what Mike told me when I asked him about recordings. He said more often than not, they weren't allowed to record the show that the bands didn't want it done. You could have, they asked me, I would have said, go for it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I, I, I don't know who would have said no to that. But, yeah. You know. Yeah. So it, it's 30 years, the Sahara record this year. Um, yep. And I've interviewed yourself bef- about this before. And I've in- I interviewed Doug Aldrich about two months ago. And Greg Jeffrey and, and Ken Mary, right? And... Doug was telling me a couple of months ago when I spoke to him, we were talking about the Hurricane record he was doing around the same time, that you guys asked him to join House of Lords and he wouldn't do it. Did did you ask him yourself to join or was that was it somebody else asked him? Oh, I mean, I was one of the uh, one of the three that asked him to join. We all wanted him in the band. I, I, to this day, he's one of the best guitar players I've ever worked with. And I think that did that um, Sahara, he had so much to do with that record. His signature is all over that record. And that's the true, when, you know, when a guitar player is that good that he stands out in the record itself, you got to give him kudos for it. So um, I love working with Doug, great guy. And yes, I was one of the guys pushing having in the band. And it was unfortunate because he was with Hurricane. Also, there was another band. Was Hurricane the one with... Um, uh, was it, or was it Lion? Because I know he was working with this other guy, Cal. Cal yeah, that's Bad Moon Rising. Yeah, that, that's... Okay, Bad Moon Rising. Okay. Yeah. But he was working with that band too at the same time. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so what? So I remember saying to him, you know, God, you know, Chuck, but he, but he, he didn't join the band, but he toured with us. Yeah. So that was, it was weird. So. So we we did get the best of both worlds, but I would have preferred to have had him in the group and have a longer time to work with him because I enjoyed it. Hmm. Now, when I had Greg Jeffrey on and we talked a little bit about Sahara, and I brought up Michael Guy, and he seemed to have reservations about that time with Michael that he was brought in, as, you needed maybe one solo, he was on a photo shoot, and he was in the band, and I think there was some legal problems there. And what are your memories of Michael being in the band? Well, I mean, it was so short-lived that I, that I don't really um, recall all the reasons. I, I think I believe that um, we, we were looking for maybe one solo again. Yeah, maybe he did one solo on Sahara. Because Doug had done pretty much all of the other, all of the guitar work. And we were looking for a guitar player because Doug wasn't going to join the band. So that's what I remember. And then when we started rehearsals, we were looking, it wasn't working out for us. For some reason, something wasn't gelling. And we turned to Doug and offered him to do the tour. And he took the tour. So you had Michael Guy doing our video on Camp on My Home and Remember My Name. And then you had Doug doing the tour, so it was kind of a strange. I think in the in the end, we all wanted to get Doug Aldridge involved in the band, and I think that was the um, the main goal. Because mm, when I when I said to Greg that you Michael Guy's picture on the record, I'm assuming yeah. he he played on the record because you know a picture well, says yeah. a thousand words. Yes, it does, and it also the videos as well. Uh, and the thing is, Michael Guy, was, I remember that we got, M- Michael and I really got along really well. And back in those days, we were young and fearless and partied together. So we were acting as band members. But something something transpired to when the tour got set and we got in the rehearsal studio to do our, our rehearsals that I don't know if it gelled or not, because I, I know that at that point, something changed. And I don't know if it was from the record company it might have been the record company that asked us to do it. Oh. But, because um, you're talking about 30 years now. I yeah. wish my memory was that good. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yes. I, do, I, just, I just remember that it ended up being Doug Aldridge. Yeah, yeah. So, James, what do you think? Do you think you're going to be able to do any live shows to promote this new album? We have on the schedule right now, February 23rd to March 21st. That's already, uh, I have a tour schedule and everything. Whether it happens or not, all depends on what happens with COVID-19. Yeah, yeah. We really, you know, but we do have it on the books. 
and uh, nothing will be um, canceled until we find if there's ever a reason like maybe this is not going to happen, we're going to have to do that well in advance. Okay. And is that in the U.S. or in Europe? Europe. Okay. All Europe. All Europe. Yeah. Okay. You're still a, you're a Boston guy now, right? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm here 10 years now. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll probably do some shows in Connecticut, uh, Rhode Island, and uh, maybe Massachusetts, but not Boston. So if, if that's the case, I'll definitely shoot you an email let me know. Perfect. All right, James, do you want to give out the social media sites where people can get in touch with you or the band? You can get in touch with me on Facebook at James Christian. And um, there's also the House of Lords page, which if you just put in House of Lords, it'll come up. It'll say fan page. Um, and those are the two places to contact us. Okay. Well, James, keep bringing up. I, I, keep... I also have a website, jameschristianmusic.com. Okay. James, keep bringing out the albums and I'll keep help promote them. They're, they're excellent. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, take care of yourself, James. Have a good rest of the day. You too. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye. All right, there is Richie's talk once again with vocalist James Christian from one of his favorite bands, House of Lords. Uh, probably can tell that by how he wanted to get every last bit of information that he was ever thinking about clarified in this interview. And I think he did... Uh, did a damn good job as far as that goes. And again, if you haven't picked up a copy yet of the brand new House of Lords album, it's called New World, New Eyes, and it came out on June 12th. And as a repeat from before, if you want to pick up the uh, Mark Weiss book, best place to do it, my opinion anyways, is go up to thedecadethatrocked.com and you can get uh, all different bundle varieties with a t-shirt, with uh, what he's called centerfolds, with some rock cards, other good stuff in there. You can even get one with a nice slip cover that goes over it. So all kinds of stuff available at thedecadethatrock.com. Or you can always go to the uh, tried-and-true Amazon or anywhere else where you can get, uh, get books these days. So just a heads up, as we're heading into the tail end of June, it is uh, again that time of year where the countdown is happening. We are just weeks away from the, uh, the annual summer break for the team here at Focus on Metal, where we every year try to attempt to step back and recharge the batteries. But as Richie would also say, uh, it never really happens. We still get hit up for interviews and all kinds of stuff still going on. So it's never truly the ability to step back for uh, for a few weeks and just enjoy the summer. But uh, anyways, every year comes summertime, we give it an effort. And uh, heads up that that's coming up in just a few weeks. Probably, I'm thinking right now, the way the episodes are going, probably going to kick that off the uh, first or second week of July. Thinking probably the second week right now. But we've got some good stuff coming up between now and then. And then we've got some other stuff already in the can for when we come back. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week... Remember, focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.